leadership. I, I, I think one of the best and most succinct definitions of leadership comes from John Maxwell. Simply this, leadership is influence. This morning, I want you to go back with me to take a look at a chapter in the life of David. You know David, shepherd, musician, writer, warrior, king, a man with an incredible influence over a whole nation. Now, like the story of, of, of Noah and the ark that we talked about last week, most people are somewhat acquainted with the story of, of, of David. They especially know the story of David and Goliath, or at least think they know the story of David and Goliath. Young man goes into battle against the hero and the giant of the opposing Philistine forces, the one that was indomitable, and he takes his sling, and he takes the stone, and he goes into battle, hits this giant with the stone, cuts off his head, end of story. That was the first battle of David's life of that nature, and it catapulted him to fame in Israel and eventually led, as God's plan unfolded, to the throne of Israel, where David became the greatest king in Israel's history. What we don't remember so well is David's last battle, or at least the last recorded uh, battle. Again, Israel is at war with their arch enemies, the Philistines. Even less do we remember the fact that in the last battle, another giant is knocked down. This guy's name is Lamhi. Uh, he's killed in battle. He's one of the heroes of the Philistines. And are you ready for this? He was a brother to Goliath. So these bookend battles that started out David's career and ended David's career are like great victories. And maybe it was the fact that at, at this point, David somehow feels invincible. I don't know what it is, but something in his attitude changes. And this is how 1 Chronicles chapter 21 records it. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab, the commander and the commanders of the troops, go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan, then report back to me so that I may know how many there are. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? I mean, most nations have a census every so many years. Well, that's true. But what's at issue here is David's motive. Most scholars suggest that the unstated motive is to know the strength of his army. Now, David, throughout his life, trusted God for his victories in battle. Do you remember when he was running at Goliath, that stone swinging above his head? He said something like this. He said, I come at you in the name of the living God whose armies you have defied. And whoosh, the stone left the sling and hit its mark. Now suddenly, David's pride has taken hold of him and sunk roots deep into his thoughts. And, and most scholars say that he's looking at his leadership, not God's at this point. In other words, he wanted to see how expansive his land was and how vast the population under his reign and how impressive the strength of his military might now, we know this command was not kosher because Joab was uncomfortable with it. And Joab, who's the commander of the, of the nation's army, is by no stretch of the imagination what you'd call a godly man. And yet Joab's scratching his head and he's, well, this is what he says in verse 3. But Joab replied, may the Lord, speaking of God, multiply his troops a hundred times over. My Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? 
And David basically said, I'm the king, do what I said. Now, now let me make a couple observations before we go any farther in the sermon. David was an older man at this point in time, had lived the bulk of his life at this point in time, and those life experiences should have served him better at a moment like this. I mean, after all, he had survived tough times on the run as a fugitive, countless battles with the Philistines and other warring nations. He had squelched a rebellion led by his own son, Absalom. He had experienced the sorrow of burying three of his own sons. And of course, he had the daily heavy weight of the burden of being king over God's people. He should have known better. Added to that is the fact that David had lived through a period of destructive sin in his own life and had witnessed the devastation that it had caused on his family and the nation as a whole. You remember the story, don't you? David has a, a, an affair with a married woman by the name of Bathsheba. A pregnancy results. That results in a desire to get rid of Bathsheba's husband. So David has him sent to the front lines at the battle while the troops withdraw. So he so certainly falls in battle, which he does. David then marries Bathsheba. The baby is born dead. He loses the respect of his family. He loses the respect of his nation. It was a disastrous time in David's life. He should have known better because of all these life experiences. Age, however, is no guarantee of mature thinking or error-free living. Elihu, one of Job's friends, made this observation. Job 32 verse 9 says, the experts have no corner on wisdom. Getting old doesn't guarantee good sense. That might have been the smartest thing that Job ever heard from one of his three friends in the book of Job. Roberta Hestonese wrote, maturity, maturity is pressing toward the mark. Immaturity is complacency and self-satisfaction. At this moment, David is dealing with complacency and self-satisfaction. Look how powerful I am. Look how victorious over my enemies I have been. But maturity is pressing toward victory over temptation. And folks, you need to know, if you don't already, that battling temptation is a lifelong fight. So don't let down your guard. Don't leave the floodgates of your mind swinging open, because if you do, the temptations will come flooding in. You just remember this. You're never too old to be tempted. You are never too good to be beyond yielding to that temptation. And Satan is never too tired of trying to help you stumble and fall. Here's something else as we take a look at this story as it unfolds. And that is, we are most vulnerable after achieving a victory. When we've been focused on... Um, on a goal and energized to reach that goal, and we've put a lot of time uh, and, and heart into it, we tend to let down our guard once that goal has been achieved. We are more susceptible to temptation once we've reached a summit experience than any other time. Now, David had just had victory over the Philistines, and he let down his guard. Let me give you another Bible example. Last week, I said we talked about Noah. Do you know what happened to Noah after the flood? Do you, you remember what happened? Noah got roaring drunk. Noah, the guy that found grace in the eyes of the Lord, the Noah that was the only one that God could find to partner with to save the, that Noah, yes, that Noah got drunk. You see, the adventure was over. The floodwaters had abated. His family was safe. The animals had survived. Their first post-flood harvest was complete. It was all done. And that's when sin entered the door. He let down his guard, and the tempter whispered to his unguarded heart. 
Be very careful when you have reached a summit moment in your life because like David and like Noah and like so many other Bible characters, Satan can get to you. He's gotten to me. He'll get to you. We're all vulnerable. Keep your guard up. And take note of this. If David had been accountable to others, he might, not have, avoid, he might have avoided this incident and, and, and not been taken in. Now, Joab tried. Bless his heart, he tried and hinted, you know, uh, don't, don't do this thing, your majesty. But David had never invited Joab to be his accountability partner. And so David basically shrugged off the advice. When you reach the summit of your career, when you're at the top of your game, there is an insidious idea that often settles in our minds. You ever seen anybody like this? They say, huh, I don't have to live by the same rules that everybody else lives by. Look at me. I'm king of my mountain. I don't have to live by the same rules. Yeah, you do. Everybody has to live by the same rules. No, nobody, nobody gets a a, a, a cut on this. Everybody has to live by the same rules that God has laid down. But we see this happen in the lives of powerful business executives and TV evangelists and professional athletes and Hollywood celebrities and elected officials. Actually, we can see it in any of us at any given time that we can say, I'm not sure I'm subject to the same rules that everybody else is. What we need is a willingness to be accountable to others who we can trust. Now, there's the key. Friends you can trust. Now, let me give you five questions that would be good to have somebody ask you. These are easy questions. They're just hard answers. Here's the first one. Have you spent time with God in prayer and through reading his word this week? Have you been pure in your thoughts? What sin did you battle against this week? How have you encouraged members of your family this week? Have you been honest with yourself, with others, and with God this week? And that's more about hypocrisy and phonies than it is dishonesty. Now, if I ask myself those questions, I get an A-plus every week because I can delude myself. I can say, well, I didn't read the Bible near as much as I should have this week, or I didn't pray as much, but if you'd have seen my schedule, if you'd have known what was going on, or sure, that thought that went through my mind, or that thought that stopped and took a little bit more time in my mind, anybody, that thought could have gone through anybody's mind. You see, I can justify anything if I'm the one asking and answering the questions. That's why you need to be accountable to somebody else who will look at you straight in the eye and ask the tough questions and wait for you to give the tough answers. Let me ask you this. Is it easier to prepare for a marathon by yourself or with two or three friends who are running and training with you? Is it easier to resist temptation by yourself or with two or three friends that are holding you accountable and walking through life with you? Of course, anything you do alone becomes far harder. David would have spared himself great pain and the nation great calamity if he had surrounded himself with a group of trusted men where he could have gone and said, I'm thinking about taking a census of the people. And they would have said, oh, David, don't do that. That will offend God. You know that's wrong. And he might have come back and said, yeah, that's right. I was, I was off base on that one. Well, the story goes on. Joab takes a census. Actually, he doesn't even complete the census. There were, there were a couple tribes he didn't even take a census of because he was so repulsed by the command. God is also angry with David too. And 2 Samuel tells us that he's also angry with the nation as a whole. I suspect for the age-old problem of apathetic or idolatrous worship. But David comes to the conclusion he's made a mistake. And this is what we read. 1 Chronicles 21, then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. The Lord said to Gad, 
David's seer or David's prophet. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says, I am giving you three options, choose one of them for me to carry out against you. As far as I know, this is the first and the last time this kind of a thing has ever been given to a man, that he gets to choose his own punishment like this. God is saying, you can have behind, what's behind door number one, door number two, or door number three. The problem is the doors are up and the calamity is no less horrendous one to the other. And here were the three choices. You can have three years of famine in the land. Number two, you can, you can be three years at, or three months at war with your enemies and running from them, or you can have three days of plague that God himself will bring upon you. Wow. What do you choose? David wisely chose the three days of plague. He said, perhaps, perhaps. I would rather fall into the hands of a loving God, for perhaps he will be gracious to me. So the plague came, thousands died, and when the plague was about to be leveled on Jerusalem, God was grieved at the calamity. Now, here's, here's the picture, at least as I understand it from Scripture. It's a mess because of the plague. And this man by the name of Aaronah, the Jebusite, has this threshing floor where he's been threshing out the grain from his harvest. And the angel of the Lord, in all of his splendor and power, is standing there at the threshing floor and his sword is drawn and it is pointed at the city of Jerusalem and God says to David, you go buy that piece of property and you build an altar there and you offer sacrifices to me and I will save the city. So David hurries to speak with Aaronah. Now, I, I've, got a, I've got a feeling that Aaronah was pretty excited to see him. Hey, the king has come to my threshing floor, and, and the king wants to buy my threshing floor. What's more, there's the angel of the Lord standing there, and I think Aaronah is scared to death. I think he said, you, if you could do anything to get that angel with all the calamity away from here, you do it. You just take my property. You take my oxen. You take my threshing floor and the sledges and the wood. You, what, it's yours, king. And in the midst of David's sin comes one of the most profound moments of wisdom. In 2 Samuel 24, 24, but the king replied to Aaronah, no, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them, top dollar price. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. Now, I, I want to give you four leadership lessons quickly this morning um, that apply to all of us. Whether you lead a large corp corporation, whether you lead a civic organization, whether you lead uh, a small group in your home, whether you lead your family, or whether you're just trying to lead yourself to be a better person, these apply to all of us. Here they go. R ready? Number one, your choices impact others. No decision, no action of our lives is ever done in a corner. Your choices impact others. David didn't endure the brunt of the punishment. The nation did. Be ever so careful what you do in life because your choices never just affect you. Now, uh, guys, this is um, a day when we're focusing sort of on our kickoff to men's ministry. There are a lot of displays out in the foyer where you can see about getting involved with men's ministry and what you can do and plug into it. And so, guys, I, I really want you to step up to this concept. I got to be a man in my family. I got to be a man in the kingdom. Uh, you know, I got I to keep growing. And so, take time this morning afterwards to, to explore all that. But since we're kind of focused on that this morning, dads, let me talk to you for, for just a minute. 
what you do will impact your children, either for good or for bad. What example they see in you, and for you grandfathers, what example your grandchildren see in you, they will grow up to imitate and follow. I mean, after all, they're o the only source of figuring out how to live life and to live in a family is what they see mom and dad do. And dads are vitally important to that. The book Children at Risk articulates the importance of a father's leadership in children's emotional development and moral education. Fathers must be there to tame adolescent boys, to give a young son a sense of what it means to be a man, and to explain why honor and loyalty and fidelity are important. For daughters, a father is a source of love and comfort that can help her avoid surrendering her virtue in a fruitless search for love through premarital sex. Dads, don't be absent from your role as fathers. Take the time to realize that your actions, your deeds, your words, your encouragement, your love may spare your children a life of heartache if you're consistently investing yourself into them. Here's the impact of another study. Um, when both parents attend church regularly, 72% of their children remain faithful to the Lord. If only dad attends regularly, 55% remain faithful. If only mom attends regularly, 15% remain faithful. And if neither attend regularly, only 6% remain faithful. Parents, do your best. Remember, your decision impacts your children in ways you may not even understand. Step up to the plate and lead, will you? Lead. Here's the second thing. Admit when you're wrong. I'm not sure when it happened to David. It may have been when he was reading the census report, but David came to the conclusion he had sinned. He said to God, I have acted foolishly. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice to hear occasionally from leaders? I have acted foolishly. Don't hear that very often in leadership circles. People in power frequently try to excuse their actions. Instead of lie, they, they, they misspeak. They feign extenuating circumstances. They posit that, well, this was the lesser of two evils. I had no choice but to do this. But to say, that was a stupid decision I made. I was really foolish. You just don't hear that from many leaders. How refreshing that would be. David is a man of leadership here. He says, I was wrong. It is my fault. God, I'm sorry. We're all wrong at times every last one of us, in our homes, in our marriages, in our businesses, in our schools. We're all wrong at times. Will you please admit when you're wrong? I, I got to tell you this. I hate to admit when I'm wrong. It is not easy. It's not fun. But I, I've come to understand that when I admit that I'm wrong, as much distaste that, that is, it is the first step towards restoration and forgiveness. God doesn't ask us necessarily to do the easy things. He asks us to do the hard things. And being a leader in your home or your business or wherever means that when you make a mistake, own up to it, admit it. Here's the third thing. Take responsibility for your actions. David pleaded with the Lord that he alone should take the punishment. It was my fault, not the nation's fault, Lord, so let the consequences rest on me. By the way, you need to remember this too, that just because you admit to something and you say, Lord, I'm sorry, I did a foolish thing, doesn't mean the consequences go away. He said that to God, and God said, okay, here's your three choices for punishment, remember? David stepped up and took responsibility for his actions, bought the property, offered the sacrifice. 
President Ronald Reagan once said, we must reject the idea that every time a law is broken, society is guilty rather than the lawbreaker. It is time to restore the American precept that each individual is accountable for his own actions. Hey, folks, long before that was an American precept, that's been a biblical precept. Every person is responsible for his or her own actions. So take responsibility for what you do, what you say, what you think, how you act. That's leadership. Here's a fourth thing. Be willing to pay the price. This is such a powerful moment. You know, David could have confiscated the land. He was king. Or when Aaron said, you just take everything, David could have said, thanks, I'll, I'll do that. Or he could have bargained down a price with him to say, okay, I won't give you full price, but I'll give you half price for your land. He could have done any of those things, but David in his wisdom says, no, 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 I will pay you top dollar for your land because I learned this. I cannot give to God which costs me nothing. It is not a gift if it doesn't cost you something. That's a principle that you need to learn and I need to learn as leaders. If we're not willing to pay the price, how can we make it a gift back to our God? There are your four leadership principles I want you to take with you. Now, I know what some of you think. Well, it's an interesting story, but hey, you didn't, you didn't talk about any mountaintop here. There, there's no summit experience in this sermon. After all, even in the title, you mentioned Mount Moriah. You haven't talked about Mount Moriah. How come we don't have that? Well, much to your dismay, the sermon is not over. All right? So, <laughs> so just, just hang on a second because I want to finish this out. All right? We're getting there. In the closing days of David's life, all right, this is after this event is over and David is now winding down his life. His lifelong dream has been to be the one to build the temple in Jerusalem to honor God, this, this house of worship. And David pleaded and begged with God and God said, no, David, you are not the man. You have been a man of war. Your son Solomon will get the privilege of building my house. Now, some people I know, I, and, and you could almost have understood David say, this is my greatest dream, Lord. You don't want me? Fine. You're not going to get my support. You're not going to get my encouragement. Solomon can do it on his own, and you can do it with Solomon. Thank you very much. But that's not how David responded at all. David threw his whole heart and energy into everything he could do so that when it came time for Solomon to build it, he would have a great foundation to build on. Look in in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 3, this is David speaking. And now because of my devotion to the temple of my God, I am giving all of my own private treasures of gold and silver to help in the construction. This is in addition to the, whole, the building materials I have already collected for the holy temple. I'm donating more than 112 tons of gold from Ophir and over 262 tons of refined silver to be used for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings and for the other gold and silver work to be done by the craftsmen. Now then, who will follow my example? Who is willing to give offerings to the Lord today? David says, I can't build it, but I can do everything to make sure that it is built. And so he gives everything for a building he would never live to see. That's leadership. David is saying, okay, I can't build it, but I'm, I'm going to make sure it happens. And then he challenges everybody to join him. Will you join with me? Because this is important. And he was talking to people who might not live to see it either. You see, we all invest in what the future is because what the kingdom is doing is the most important work in the world. George Sweeting said, when we come to the end of life, the question will be how much have you given, not how much have you gotten. And while God didn't let David build the temple, 
where it was built was of great significance to David. And we have to go to 2 Chronicles. This is after Solomon has come to the throne. This is after David is gone. And this is what we read in 2 Chronicles 3.1. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Aronah, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. God says, David, you aren't going to build the temple, but you've bought the place where it will stand. And for the next numerous generations, this place will be a place of sacrifice that will point to the coming of my son, who will ultimately pay for the sins of humanity. And you're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, Mount Moriah, Mount Moriah. Is this the only place we, it seems like there is another Mount Moriah in Scripture. Yeah, yeah, there is. But you've got to go back another 800 years. Folks, I, I'm overwhelmed by how God pulls all the pieces of the puzzle together to, to remind us he's in charge, he has a plan. 800 years before, Abraham. Remember Abraham? Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. He was the first Hebrew. God made a promise to Abraham that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed and it wasn't until Abraham was a hundred that his son Isaac was born who was the heir of that promise. And so when Isaac gets to be a late teenager or maybe in his early 20s, God comes to Abraham one day and he says, Abraham, I've got a job for you to do. And Abraham said, what is it, Lord? And he says, I want you to take Isaac, your son, your only son whom you love, and I want you to take him to this mountain range that I'll tell you about, and there I want you to sacrifice him to me. Now, you need to know right up front that God had no intention of Abraham killing his son. But this is a test to see, do you love him more or do you love me more? And so they pack up and they take off. It's a three-day journey. And, and you see them on that third day, father and son walking up this hill. Isaac has got the wood on his back. Abraham's got the fire in hand and probably a knife tucked into his belt. And Isaac looks over at his dad with puzzlement and he says, Father, I, I've got the wood, you've got the fire, but I, where is the sacrifice? Now, that must have been words that pierced to the heart of Abraham. And Abraham looks at Isaac and he says, Son, God will provide. And they get to the top. They get to the summit. And, and Abraham builds an altar and he takes the wood and he spreads it out on the altar and he binds his son's hands and feet, lays Isaac, this older teenager boy, I mean, one that could have easily outrun his father at this point, but submissive to his father's will, lays him on top of the wood, raises his knife to complete the sacrifice when God stops him and says, Abraham, don't you do a thing. I now know the extent of your love. And suddenly behind them in the bushes, there is a ram caught with his horns, the lamb that would take away the sin and they sacrifice the lamb and the father and the son go home rejoicing at God's provision and all the marvelous memories that were created in that moment. You know what the name of that mountain was? Moriah. Right there, 800 years before, when God was giving the most incredible picture of what he was going to do on top of Mount Moriah, and then the temple was built there because, you see, 2,000 years later, another father and son walked up a lonely hill. This time the son was carrying the sacrificial wood on his own back, but in the shape of a cross. And this time there was no God to step in and interview, uh, intervene and halt the process. And there was no ram caught in the bushes behind because the one who carried the wood was the Lamb of God. God was intervening. 
but in an altogether different way. And there, in the shadow of Mount Moriah, Jesus died so you wouldn't have to. Do you see how the pieces just fit together so God can say from the beginning, it's been about my grace for you. When Bertel Thorvaldsen had completed his famous Christus statue, he invited a friend to see it. The Danish sculptor had created the portrayal of Christ with his arms outstretched as if inviting people to him. And the friend took a look at the statue and says, I, I, I can't see the face of Christ. The sculptor said, if you want to see the face, you have to get down on your knees. The power of Mount Moriah is that the one who fulfilled the promise to Abraham, the one who was hailed as the son of David, is our Savior. And only on your knees will you reach that summit of faith. This is one mountaintop experience you dare not miss in your life.